So, A.W. Tozer, in a book, Knowledge of the Holy, it's a great book. He writes the following. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he may be given at any time, what he may see or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. I think it's pretty strong. So what he's saying is one of the most important things about us as men is what we think about God. So God is, he's God, right? As we're going to learn about him this morning, he's infinite. He's, in, he's, he's eternal. So God has given us attributes to be able to understand him better. So let's suppose I had a cup in my hand, and I told you that there was a mysterious liquid inside this cup. And if I told you that this liquid was colorless, and odorless, and tasteless, and at 32 degrees and below it was a solid, between 30 and 33 degrees and 211 degrees it was a liquid, and at 212 degrees it turned into a gas, and it was made of two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. What would you tell me? What, if I asked you what was in a cup, what would your response be? Water. Okay. Likewise, now if I ask you, if I say what entity can be everywhere at once, who's all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal, what would your response be to that? God, okay? Because that's how we recognize and that's how we understand God better is through his attributes. Who's the person that can define God, right? I mean, he's eternal. We're not. We'll learn more about that in just a moment. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines God as an enumeration of his attributes. And they read the following. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And that's how he defines God. It's quite concise, but pretty accurate. So we know that God is one essence, right? He is he is a being. He's one essence. He's made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But he's one essence. And the being of God is described by these attributes, and it tells us who he is and what he does. And just as I and you, we have different attributes about ourselves. I have hazel brown eyes. I have brown, slightly graying hair, right? We each have attributes of ourselves. So these attributes of God help demonstrate who he is and what he does. So if we were to take the attributes of God and do a study on this, then most often they're broken down into two types of, two types of attributes, two categories. There is the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. So let's at least touch base on the communicable attributes of God before we get to the incommunicable. So these are attributes that God actually shares with us. In other words, they can be reflected in us. Think of what Genesis 1, 26, 27 says. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So God has created us in his own image. So is it not, is it not important that we understand the attributes of God? And the communicable attributes, as we just discussed, those can be reflected in us. And some examples of what those might be are holiness, mercy, justice, love, grace. Ephesians 5.1, Paul instructs us, this is, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are called to imitate the holy, righteous, eternal God. Consider the attribute of holiness. We all agree that God is set apart from creation and he is morally pure without a hint of sin. It's the purest of pure. No sin whatsoever exists in God. His holiness is infinite. Yet we, as his sons and daughters, we are continually being purified over the course of our lives by the working of his spirit. So that's one of his communicable attributes to us is his holiness, right? So we don't share the attributes to the same degree or perfection that God does, but they are reflected in us as believers. John 1, 3 and 3 says, 1 John 3 and 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. These are, these are, so these are the communicable attributes of God. That would be left for another day, for another teaching. But what I would like to focus on this morning, since we're in the book of Revelation, is the incommunicable attributes of God. See, these belong to God alone. They cannot be transferred to you and I, not even to the nth degree, right? They belong to God alone. The ones that I'm going to talk about this morning are immutability, infinity, and self-existence. Now, depending on which theological book you read, some authors may say there's seven attributes, incommunicable attributes. Others may say nine. What authors do sometimes is they group them together. But I would like to focus on these three attributes this morning. And as we talk about these attributes, they are not isolated from one another. It's really important for us to see. And as we get into them, it's going to make a lot more sense. So God's not divisible. So God cannot be, where he's being self-existent, it doesn't mean he can't be infinite at the same time, right? These attributes we're going to see marry together. So why are they so important? Acts 17 and 28 says, In him we live and move and have our being. And if I had a linchpin verse for today, that would be it. So if you were a believer of God right now, if you've fallen on your face and submitted to the Lord Jesus, when it comes to God, it says that we, in him, we live, we move, and we have our being. So thank you. Just, you know what? Let's do this just for 10 seconds. If you would close your eyes, please, for 10 seconds and think about that. In him, we live, and we move, and we have our being. That's who we are as Christians. So what this also means is that we are living out the book of Revelation right now today. I think it was the first or the second lesson or preaching that Ben did on Revelation that this book is not just futuristic, right? We are in Revelations today. And if we are in God, we are in the book of Revelations. This isn't just a book that we're studying. We are in God. He is in us. This is our story, and this is his story. So if you can grasp, 
If you can grasp even some of this, it makes our study of Revelation so critical. So to help you better grasp the word that you're being preached, I would ask that you get to know you are God. So the pattern of this message is really pretty straightforward. I want to talk about that. I've got these attributes in three groupings. We'll define the attribute. Then we'll take just a moment out and talk about, okay, what does that mean in relation to the book of Revelations? And after that, we'll say, what does that mean in relation to your walk with Christ? So the first one I would like to discuss is the self-existence of God. Another way to put it, some theologians would write the independence of God. The theological term would be aseity. It means, it's Latin, it means from self. So unlike created things, God is self-existent. He has existence within himself. Nothing calls his existence, nor does he rely on anything outside of himself for his existence. God exists by the necessity of his own being, whereas you and I don't. So God is because he is. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say that in God's beginning, but it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I love Moses in Exodus 3, God's response to Moses. When Moses asked God, he says, when I go back to the people of Israel and Egypt, and this is right after he's just seen the burning bush, and tell them I've met with you, and you commanded me to bring them out of Egypt, and they ask me, and they say, who sent you? What shall I tell them? And God tells Moses, and it was a song we sang this morning, God tells Moses, he says, tell them that the I am sent you. That's how he defines himself. God is created of himself. Everything is from him, nothing outside of him. He simply is the I am. There is no one or anything even close to being like God. Isaiah 40, 25 says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Who? Who could we even compare to God? He's existed in himself, not dependent upon anything else. He is not only independent in himself, but he causes everything else to be dependent upon him. So Hebrews 1.3, the Lord upholds the world by the word of his power. So if he ceased to exist, it's impossible. He can't cease to exist. But if God were to cease to exist, everything else that we know would exist just like that. So not only is he self-sufficient, self-existent, everything he's created is dependent upon him. God, he's independent in thought. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. God does not rely on anything exterior of himself to create his thought. You and I do. We rely on so many sources outside of ourselves to create our thought patterns. God doesn't do that. He's independent. God is independent in his will. Daniel 4.35 reads, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven 
and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's his will. Derived, it comes from within him. Nothing exterior to the outside of him defines his will. This is who God is. This is his self-existent, the independent God. God is independent in his power. Psalm 115, 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Nothing holds God back. He's not dependent upon anything else. His power is his, derived from inside of who he is. God is independent in his counsel. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Now, conversely, in the word, I think it's Proverbs, it is, if we're wise, it instructs us to do what? To seek counsel, right? Proverbs says if you, the wise seek counsel. God has counsel within himself. He doesn't seek counsel outside of himself. Everything comes from within him. Acts 17, 24, 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. God doesn't need us. Think about that. He doesn't need us. God existed before creation. He self-existed. The fullness of God was in place long before he created. And God wants us. He's created us. He wants a relationship with us. I think that's even more powerful than him needing us. But we could cease to exist today. God, God is in his fullness, right? It's, it's just an interesting truth. So how does this relate to the book of Revelation? So we've talked about God as independent. He's self-existent. He's created from within himself. He's not dependent on anything. As we go through Ben's preaching the book of Revelation, so how does this intersect? How does this act? Well, consider Psalm 50, verses 12 through 13, when it says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? In Isaiah 40, 18 through 23, says, To whom will you liken God, or what likeness compared to, with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts silver for its change. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know... Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. So God speaking of creation. God existed before creation, and he was perfect. He doesn't need creation. He had perfect fellowship before creation. He had his fullness before creation. It was in his overflow that he even created this world. Therefore, he's not bound to creation. 
This is why it's important in Revelation. We read of all the things that God has put in order back from the beginning, back from Genesis, through the whole world, the word, and it's wrapping up in Revelation. God can do as he pleases because he's not bound by creation. It's something outside of him. This means he possesses absolute freedom in what he does with creation. And when we read the book of Revelation, God has the ability to replace the old heaven and earth with a new heaven and earth, and he does so at his pleasure. So as you're reading Revelation, thinking about, wow, these are really weighty things. God, you mean God can actually just destroy everything and create it as new? Yes, he can. Yes, he can, because he's independent and he's self-existent. So how does this relate to your daily walk with God? What does this mean? I mean, we're talking like theology 101, right? The incommunicable attributes of God. So what does his self-existence and his independence mean to you in your daily walk? John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son to also have life in himself. Well, since the Father and Son have life in themselves, they are not dependent upon anything outside of themselves, and they have absolutely authority to grant you life through them. So that the life they're granting you, for those of you that have bowed your knees to Jesus and you've submitted to him as Lord, God has imputed life into you. You've been reborn. That life is coming from him. It is dependent upon nothing outside of him. Nothing can make it go away. Nothing can stay it. It's in you. To being a simple man, I try to come up with an analogy, and you know, anytime, I don't know if you've experienced this, Michael, anytime we try to come up with an analogy of God, it just falls short. It just falls short. So I'm going to try. <laughs> this is my Bible. I've had it for a long time. This is mine. If I want to give this Bible to Eduardo, it's his. I can do that. But if I'd forgotten this Bible this morning, and I've reached over to Michael, hey, Michael, can I borrow your Bible for this morning's message? And if I was to give that to Eduardo, see, that's a different thing because I'm trying to give Eduardo something I don't have control of, right? So that life that he has given you, that's come from with him, not dependent upon anything. It cannot be taken away. So next is the immutability of God. That's a big word. It means the changelessness of God. God cannot change. So immutability means that God cannot change. This is an attribute of his. And you're going to see already these attributes, they are, they are one and another. You can't separate these when you talk about God, right? So since God was self-existent, independent, and he has his attribute of, he just can't change because that's who he is. So the immutability of God is the unchangeableness of his essence, attributes, purposes, and consciousness. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what we receive from God, we receive from God because we will always receive from God. Herman Bafnick, if I'm pronouncing that right, he's a Dutch theologian, he wrote the following. The doctrine of God's immutability is the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming 
marks the difference between the creator and the created. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, finds its rest in God, in him alone, for only he, being God, is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in Scripture, God is often called the rock. So we've read that in Scripture a lot. They talk about God being a rock. Rocks don't change a lot, right? A rock is a rock. Everything else we know changes. Plants come and go. Earth comes and goes. We come and go. Rocks pretty much stay the same. And maybe that's why oftentimes when they refer to God, they refer to him as a rock. You see, God is perfect, and change is unnecessary. If you're perfect, what need of change do you have? God is perfect. He is perfect in his holiness, his righteousness, his justice. If you were perfect, you would have no need for change. His knowledge, his plans, his moral principles are forever the same. I mean, plain reason would teach us that change is impossible for God because change is one of, if something's going to change, the future state is going to be different from the current state, right? The future state is either going to be better or it's going to be worse. And since God is perfect, there's no need for change. The same goes for his divine will. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? It's important for you to understand. So as we go through revelations and in your walk with Christ, the God whom you serve doesn't change. That should be strength to you. That should be, it should bring calmness to your soul. Malachi 3.6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Psalms 122, 26 and 27. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. If we want to bring a New Testament, we can go to Hebrews 13, 18. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The act of creation made no change in God. God was unchangeable. This is an attribute of his. This is who he is. And when God decided to create, when God kicked everything off and put it into existence, it didn't change him. It didn't change him at all. It did not affect his own eternal essence. God, when God created this world and made creation, he didn't give up or lose any of his essence. His will and his power to create have been the same from eternity. The entire Bible is a record of God's action in history. His leading and responding with man. So the divine immutability should not be understood as implying immobility, as if there were no movement in God. So God is immutable, he doesn't change, but that doesn't mean he's immobile, right? 
He responds. He responds to prayers, does he not? He responds to repentance. This is whom God is. So because he changes his response to something, as we're going to see here in just a moment, doesn't mean that he isn't immutable. It just means that he responds. So on several occasions, the scriptures speak of God repenting or changing his mind. And some of these might be Genesis 6, Exodus 32, 2 Samuel 24. I don't have time to go into all these, but the skeptics love to bring these up. The skeptics like to say, you know, your God says one thing, but there's been times he said one thing, but he's done another. He changed. He changed his mind. This morning, I don't have time to cover all of those, but I will pick one. In Jonah, it states that God repented of the evil that he had said he would do to Nineveh. And if you read that, you think, wow, okay, God, God, you said you were going to do this, but then you changed your mind, right? So how, how does that fall into the immutability of God? Well, let's read Jonah 3.10. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So this doesn't mean there's any change in God's attribute or his character, but only in his manner of how he treated men. If God had treated the Ninevites after their repentance as he had treated them or was going to treat them before their repentance, this would have proved him to be mutable. It would have showed him to be at one time displeased with impentance and at another time still show punishment when someone was penitent, right? So that's what would make God immutable. So if you go back, and so if we hear the skeptics and they tell you, and that's their argument against you, that you know, even Scripture says that God changes. He doesn't change his character and his essence, his nature, his will. So think of all that you've read in the Old Testament. We love reading about the, the Old Testament, the whole cycle of Israel, and I'm being very generic here. Israel would sin, and God would send the prophets to warn them of what he was about to do. Then Israel would repent, they would turn back to God, and then God would speak blessing over them. That's the Old Testament. We read that time and time again. God didn't change. Israel changed. God changed his response. So promises and threats made conditionally to bring about change in man do not imply change in the essence or the attributes of God. So my question to you is this. Do these texts undermine our confidence in the immutability of God? Most certainly not. Let the skeptics rant. Let them rave. We have the word of God. It's true and just. So how does the immutability of God, again, let's take it to Revelation now. So you've spent the last two months in Revelation, so you're about three quarters of the way through the book with Ben. It relates this way. God's immutability is not only a comforting assurance concerning the blessings which God has promised, but it's also an awesome warning that God will fulfill his word regarding judgment for sin. This thing's, we started speaking of redemption in Genesis 3.16. That's where it started. So from then to now, God has been pronouncing what happens with the obedience, the righteous that are in Christ and those that are not. So the immutability of God will bring this and carry this all the way to the end through revelation. That won't change. God is presently restraining his own wrath and his enemy's efforts to destroy the church 
as he patiently gathers his redeemed people through their testimony that the suffering proclaim about Jesus. God does not change. He is immutable. And how does this relate to your daily walk? The immutability of God is assurance for you. This assurance provides stability and confidence in times of uncertainty and circumstances that appear threatening. Because your God is unchanging, his promises and his purposes are certain. They cannot and they will not fail. God is omniscient. He knows everything. That will never change. That means that God will not be surprised by anything that's happening in your life. If you woke up this morning and you found something out or some new issue presented itself to you, it has not caught God off guard. You have an incorruptible sacrifice, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has accomplished eternal redemption for all who receive it. That doesn't change. That's something you can rest your boots on. You have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot be changed. No matter what the enemy can throw against it, it won't change. That's the assurance that you have. You have a God who deals with you consistently in his character and in his word. Sometimes the hardest thing in the world is moving targets, isn't it? Your place of employment, you know, you think you're supposed to do one thing and you find out it's something else. Your relationships, you think you're at one level, you've got this thing, this agreement going on with your spouse or your kids, and it seems like the, the goal line changes. That's frustrating. But you have a God who deals with you consistently in his character and his word. It does not change. You know where the plumb line is. You know where the goal line is. And lastly, you have a great high priest who abides forever and holds his priesthood permanently. The last attribute I'd like to talk about is the infinity of God. The infinity of God is that perfection of God by which he is free from all limitations. We are finite. God is infinite. So you can look at infinite two ways. One, it just goes on and on and on. It's infinity. The other is it's free of all limitations. That would be the negative way of saying it. The infinity of God alone can take weeks to explain, but I'll try to provide at least three areas to, to attempt to sum this up. One is his eternity. God's eternity is an expression of his infinity is related to time. Psalm 92 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And Psalm 102:27 says, But you are the same, and your years have no end. So we need to keep in mind that God created time. The same time he created time, he created matter and energy. And this is, it's, it's, it was creation in itself. And it was hard for us to wrap our head around is time didn't always exist. God has always existed. But time is part of his creation. So although God created time, he is not bound by time. Like fish that live and breathe inside a, a pool or a container of water, 
we're engulfed in time, and it's hard for us to think outside of that. It's how we understand, it's how we relate to the world around us. We think of God's eternity as a duration infinitely prolonged backwards and forwards. So for basically all my life until I was studying for this, preparing for this, when someone was to say God was eternal, I envisioned this timeline, right? So you have time and God is present from the very beginning to the very end. Eternity, in a strict sense of the word, is ascribed to that which transcends the temporal limitations. So remember, time is is temporary. It's a creation of God. God fills time and every part of it, but his eternity is not limited to time. See, our existence is marked off by seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, years. That's how we look at things. We often divide our lives up into the past, the present, and the future. That's the way our language is set up, isn't it? Past tense, present tense, future tense. So for us, when we think of time, it's divisional, right? It's, it's, there's allotted segments of time. Our life is divided, but there is no division in the existence of God. We go back to the song we were saying, and we go back to Exodus 3, when God says he is the eternal, I am. He has elevated all temporal limits and succession of moments and possesses the whole existence in one individual presence. So this is hard. This is really hard for me to explain, and I hope that I do okay. We look at time in the past, the present, the future. When God looks at time, he sees it all at once. God's view in the time, he sees the past, the present, and the future all presently in his view. Right? He sees it at one time. He's not regulated or limited to the different aspects of time, the way that we break it up. So what this means is God allows this. He can see all of history and the future with perfect clarity. I mean, we have a difficult time with the book of Revelations and other things we read in the Word because we're thinking, okay, past, present. Is this future? Is this past? Is this present? Sometimes the prophetic words we get can be confusing to us, can't they? Is this a word for the past? Is this a word for now or the future? This is how we think. When God sees time, when he looks at time, he sees the past, the present, and the future all in real time. In one flash, he sees everything together. The second attribute of God in this section on infinity is his immensity. This is the affinity of God in reference to space. So we just talked about the infinity of God in reference to time, but this is the infinity of God in reference to space. In systematic theology, Burkhoff, he stated it this way. says, God's immensity is that perfection of the divine being by which he transcends all spatial limitations and yet is present in every point of space with his whole being. So what he's saying is, God can be everywhere, the omnipresence of God, right? God can be everywhere. But it's not some of God here and some of God there and some of God over there. When God is there, he is fully present everywhere. He transcends any spatial limitations. Just as he transcends limitations to time, God transcends limitations to space. This means that God is transcendent. He is outside of his creation, 
while simultaneously being present on the inside of it. But he's not present in every part of creation in the same sense. He doesn't dwell on earth in the same way that he dwells in heaven. He doesn't dwell in an animal in the same way that he dwells in man. Psalm 139.7 says, Where shall we go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So as we read the word, especially in Revelations, and we're having a difficult time with things, just God just blowing things away and creating things new or appearing here or there, he's not limited to spatial, spatial limitations. The third section of the infinity of God I'd like to address is his absolute perfection. And you're going to see this does migrate to the other two. So let's not limit God's infinity to just time and space. That's the easiest for to do, right? He's eternal, he's omnipresent. The infinity of God is the divine essence. It's God has being viewed as having no bounds or no limits whatsoever. And here, this is where we can speak, for example, to the omniscience of God, the all-knowing. God can do anything he chooses, but he does not do everything. See, God cannot lie. This is one of those back patio conversations. You've all heard a question, trick question. Can God lie? Well, I guess he could, but he's immutable and he won't go against himself, right? The only limits that God has on himself are those that his very own nature places on himself. There are no other limits. God is unlimited. He is perfect. Since limitation implies imperfection, the infinity of God implies that he is perfect in every respect of which he is infinite. So we talk about God knows everything. We say God is infinite. Well, he is perfect in that. There is nothing that he doesn't know. It's limitless. Matthew 5.48, it says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a whole other sermon in itself. It's not telling us to strive to be perfect. It's telling us we have to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. And there's only one way that's done, and that's through his son, Jesus. You see, God is infinite in himself. That's who he is. He's his infinity doesn't lie outside of him. His infinity is within him. See, we too often only think of the quantitative aspects. We think of God being all-powerful, but infinite power is not just absolute quantum, just the availability, the amount of power, but an exhaustless potency of power. That's the x-axis, y-axis thing. So, you know, for so many years, I thought, yeah, God's all-powerful. You know, I could take this lamp and I could plug it into this, this outlet, providing the church has paid his power bill. The juice just keeps coming, right? Power just keeps coming. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. I plug into it. And that's when I thought, if God's all-powerful, then his powerful is, it just can't be exhausted. It just keeps coming. It keeps coming, right? It just it flows of it, flows of it. Just God needs power here, power there. He puts power here. That's only the, the x-axis. The y-axis is the power he provides, 
the power that, that makes up God. This is a 110 outlet. There's 240 volt outlets, right? There's, there's more. It's the potency of God's power too is that Y axis. And these are the things that we have to try to wrap our head around. Likewise, we think of holiness. We think of the boundless quantum of holiness, meaning God has enough holiness to cover his church, right? How many times have we heard the expression, God's got enough holiness to go around, right? It's not just the amount of holiness. Change your, change your view. Go from the x-axis to the y-axis. And think of it this way. God's holiness is an absence of all limitation and defect. It's not this that God has enough holiness to go around. The holiness that God has is perfect. It's a perfect holiness. It's infinite. There's no bounds to the depth of holiness within God. It's the purest of pure. The same could be said of knowledge, of wisdom, of love, and righteousness. So (laughs) it's pretty obvious. I'm struggling this morning. How do we put words, especially my limited vocabulary, how do we put words and describe an infinite God? But you need to know that he is infinite. So how does this relate to the book of Revelation? God the creator reigns. That's how it relates to the book of Revelation. God the creator reigns. Jesus the redeemer, the slaughtered lamb is Lord. The reign of the eternal God, the beginning and the end, is not merely future or past, but is present. It was the first or the second lesson Ben did in Revelations. He said, we're not talking about some futuristic events here. We're talking about today. We're talking about the church. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are inseparable. Each can be called the Alpha and Omega. They rule together in all power and all wisdom on one throne. Revelation, the book of Revelation, will come about because of the infinity of God. So how does this relate to your walk? Whatever situation you find yourself in, God is there. Where can you go? Whether you're in a difficult marriage, a prison cell, in these pews, whether your children are falling off, just falling apart at home, it doesn't matter. God is there. God is present in his fullness. That's something to remember. If life is hard for you right now and you're fighting to hang on, remember that this is only for a season. Eternity is not of this world. God sees your future with perfect clarity. He is not caught off guard by anything. God is aware of every circumstance in your life right now. But are you applying that? Is that in your prayers? Is that in your meditations? When you're crying out to God? So let me try to bring this home. God's incommunicable attributes reveal why we owe him glory, honor, and praise. 
And I'm sure that I have fallen well short this morning of trying to describe the attributes of God. But even in my weakness, those attributes say why we owe him glory, honor, and praise. The one who is supreme deserves the obedience and the worship of those he has made. We are his creation. He created us. We owe him everything. We owe him ourselves, our lives, our worship, our beings. The attributes are important because they establish the supremacy of God, the magnitude of his greatness, and the infinite extent of his perfection. We must take these to heart because the whole drift in our culture is to conceive of a God much more like us, isn't it? Culture, but they want to dumb down. They want to draw down God to be a God like us. It's almost a pathetic being in many ways. This is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is one before whom we should absolutely marvel that he would even deem to create or more so even to care about us. As we started off the self-existence of God, he was fully, fully happy with himself and who he is and the fellowship he had with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There was nothing missing, nothing devoid of God. That's not why he created us. He created us out of his overflow. He wanted us to worship him, to exalt him, to have fellowship with him. He wanted to bless us. He wants to pour himself into us. And he has every right to ask that of us. If our worship and our praise. I guess this is a dry subject. The incommunicable attributes of God. But if you would, just let it sink in. This is the God you serve. This is your God. This is the God of revelation. If you have fallen on your face before Jesus and you have said, yes, Lord, yes, be Lord of my life, this is the God you've submitted to. If you're going to submit to a God, let it be this one. Okay? If there's anybody here this morning and you say, you know, I haven't done that. Strange things about this God you're talking about, but yet something appealing all at the same time. Then come talk to somebody up here after service because we would love to pray for you. Let me just close in prayer if I could.